Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we look at Saudi Arabia, two new books about Saudi Arabia and its relations with the United States, with the Middle East, and with the world. First, we talk to David White about his new book, Oil Money, Middle East Petrodollars and the Transformation of U.S. Empire, 1967 to 1988. Then we turn to the region and we talk to Simon Mabon about his new book, The Struggle for Supremacy in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, Thanks for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by David White of the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and the author of the brand new Cornell University Press book, Oil Money, Middle East Petrodollars and the Transformation of U.S. Empire, 1967 to 1988. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this book really kind of brought back some some memories for me from graduate school when uh, an old colleague of mine, David Spiro, was writing about petrodollars and recycling and the like. And uh, but that seemed like a very early approach to this. And this book is just fascinating in terms of what you've been able to uncover in terms of how petrodollar recycling actually worked in uh, U.S. foreign policy. Tell us a little bit about the book and, and how you got going with it and what you think the major contribution is. Certainly, yeah, and, and Spyro's book is great, but of course he uh, it was published over 20 years ago now, so I had the benefit of getting to go through a lot more documents that have been declassified, and that was one of the key motivations for me to write the book, is that there were all these new sources available that could uh, be used to sort of clarify and better analyze the role of petrodollars in U.S relations with the Middle East and North Africa. And I came upon three kind of core themes that I think are central to the book. One is I wanted to develop this idea of cooperative empire between the United States and key petrodollar-rich allies in the Middle East, particularly Saudi Arabia and Iran under the Shah. And I wanted to demonstrate how it was kind of paradoxically that at a moment when Saudi Arabia and Iran were accruing far more financial, but also, you know, related to economic, political, cultural power, that the United States actually was able to use, harness this power, this petrodollar power and influence for its own purposes and demonstrate how it was that you know, on the surface, if you're thinking kind of zero sum, okay, the Saudis, the Iranians, they have more power with petrodollars and with oil, you might expect the United States to lose influence in the region or globally. Uh, But I demonstrate how in many ways, the United States was actually able to channel these petrodollars into investments, into forms of aid, into weapons purchase, development projects that serve both U.S. interests as they saw them, and of Saudi and Iranian monarchical interests. Secondly, I wanted to kind of put into dialogue two different fields that were largely separate, one that's very interested in geopolitics and one that's very interested in economics. And I wanted to show the intersections there and how petrodollars were not just used in the financial realm, uh, but we're often, you know, how 
the use of markets was used to advance different geopolitical aims. And then finally, I wanted to pay a lot more attention to culture, to how both in the United States mm -hmm. and in the Arab world and in Iran, there were these different cultural narratives about petrodollars and their impacts on home societies and the larger world. And so I wanted to show how this wasn't just, you know, straightforward economics or politics, but these really came into different cultural narratives and these cultural debates were key in shaping key political developments, whether this was Congress deciding to pass an arms sale to Saudi Arabia or the Iranian revolution, different cultural narratives and ideas about petrodollars were key in both society's understandings about the changes of globalization, uh, but also in their sort of struggles over political power. And so kind of taking culture seriously as a form of power in regards to petrodollars. Uh, so those were kind of three of the, the key structures that I built the book around. You know, it's, it's interesting. It brings me back to my uh, my IR field seminar days where people used to uh, present interdependence as kind of a liberal approach to IR, which was in opposition to realism. And yet you've got, you know, Henry Kissinger and others in, in the Nixon Ford administrations really openly, you know, discussing the use of interdependence as part of power politics. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Yeah, you know, Henry Kissinger, the like arch realist, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he very much, what after the 73 oil shock was all on board and very active in trying to get petrodollars flowing from Saudi Arabia and Iran back into the United States. And uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he, he used the term, you know, those Bedouins, he's like, if they want to spend all their money in soccer stadiums, <laughs> that's fine. As long as they're buying from the United States and they need us to complete these projects. More seriously, he was interested in things like arms deals and major factories. Uh, you know, he was being somewhat tongue in cheek, but the core point, he was deadly serious. He thought mm -hmm. the only way for the United States to maintain its influence in the Middle East was if there were strong financial ties that bound, you know, both in terms of investments and in terms of weapons, those countries needed to be strongly interdependent with the United States. He recognized that the United States, but to a lesser degree, but more broadly, the U.S. global alliance, Western Europe, Japan, was dependent on Middle East oil. And so he didn't want that dependence to be one right. way. He wanted it to be dependence flowing in both ways. And the more that the United States was in control of where the petrodollars were, the better he believed the United States could kind of control decisions on a whole host of issues, including pricing of oil, but also things like the Arab-Israeli conflict and containment of communism and host of other issues. Right. Yeah. The uh, the soccer stadium line jumped out at me in the wake of the World Cup. That's for sure. Um, sure. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about petrodollars then. Uh, so we use that word. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that people kind of generally remember about the oil shock and the uh, the shift of power and sovereignty over the control of oil. Walk us through this a little bit in terms of how the oil becomes petrodollars. What does that mean in terms of recycling and interdependence and all these concepts that you're using? 
Yeah, excellent question. So petrodollars essentially just means dollars that are spent to purchase oil. And in the Middle East, especially in the 1970s and 1980s, but even today, the vast majority of oil that is sold is sold in dollars. And that doesn't matter if it's a U.S. company or a U.S. purchaser or another country. Uh, everyone is doing business in dollars. And so there's this linkage between the global export of oil and the, the flow of dollars. Oil is then and now the largest single commodity traded internationally. Uh, and so the fact that it's denominated in dollars means that oil sales has a key role in dollars flowing in the international monetary system and the value of the dollar. Uh, this is sometimes overstated or exaggerated. Sometimes you get kind of very conspiratorial narratives of like petrodollars basically controlling the entire world or it's like, you know, the cornerstone yeah. of everything. I don't quite go that far, but I do think that it plays a very significant role. And especially in the 1970s, it was very important, uh, you know, especially right after the 73 oil shock in 1974, kind of roughly like half of the new uh funds that are going to Western banks are coming from these oil exporting countries. So if they're not investing in the West, if they decided to like hold mm -hmm. on to the money, you would have a giant liquidity problem. You would have banks that could no longer lend, for example. Uh, it becomes a, the new key source for arms exports, whereas in the 1960s, a lot of weapons from the West are going to places like Southeast Asia, Vietnam, the new arms market shifts to the Middle East in the 1970s. And can talk, unlike- Can you talk about that a little, little bit just for a second? The role of arms sales is especially interesting in your narrative. Yeah, it's, it's a key component. And this is one where you can really see the economics and the geopolitics mm -hmm. going hand in hand. Um, you know, from 1970 to 1978, essentially U.S. arms sales to the Middle East- um, increased by tenfold or more. And this is primarily being driven by sales to Saudi Arabia and Iran, but there's also linkages to Israel. Israel insists mm -hmm. on more weapons as Saudi Arabia gets more weapons. Saudi Arabia is giving money to Egypt so that they can start to purchase U.S. weapons. And so petrodollars kind of spiral out in a lot of different ways for the arms race in the Middle East. And this becomes a major concern. This is a good kind of example where you see these sort of cultural battles as well on both sides. In Iran, you have Khomeini sort of denouncing the fact that the Shah is spending all this money on arms while people are starving in Iran and becomes one of his key sort of planks. And he uses it as of an example of where Iran, like the Iranian military is dependent on the United States because they need U.S advisors coming in by the tens of thousands to train them on these weapons. And so he says that this mm -hmm. is a way basically to rob Iran of its oil and also to rob it of the same time of its money and its control of its military. Conversely, in the United States, you have many people who are saying kind of the mirror image that these arms sales are being used as a way to control the United States, that with U.S. advisors in Iran, that if something happens, you know, Iran's going to get dropped or the United States is going to get sucked into like a new Vietnam in the Middle East 
or that this, you know, right. weapons are going to the Iranians that even the U.S. military aren't getting enough of. Um, so you see these arguments kind of in interesting ways mirroring each other. And Carter comes in really critical, and then very quickly he becomes even more enthusiastic. Yeah, Carter's an interesting one because for Fixon and Ford, they were very much on and Kissinger very much on board of just sell as many mm -hmm. weapons as possible to U.S. allies. Carter and his advisors, like Vance, they genuinely, for both strategic and moral reasons, thought that there should be a curbing and drawing back of arms sales to the Middle East. And they actually make some significant on the U.S. side steps in that direction. They do start curbing sales. They recognize they have to sell some weapons and even some major weapons to Saudi Arabia, to Iran, to keep them happy within the alliance. But they're taking steps to try to slowly reduce sales. They even reach out to the Soviet Union, to allies in NATO to try to coordinate on cooling the arms race. But they don't find any real big takers amongst the European powers, the Soviet mm -hmm. Union, and they don't find very much interest in the Middle East either. And they haven't figured out a solution of how to get people on board when you have the Iranian Revolution, you have the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and then the Carter administration just ditches that and says they have to double down. Right, right. The only way to reassure Saudi Arabia and to kind of arm them against perceived threats, but especially that the Saudis are just crying for weapons after these upheavals, to both arm themselves, but also to kind of gain reassurance that the United States is going to be linked to them. They're just demanding new weapon sales and the Carter administration in the face of these fires mm -hmm. doubles down on arms sales. Reagan will continue that, uh, you know, full forward into the eighties. And so and you that, have this brief the epic showdown over the AWACS and um, putting, you know, actually putting uh, uh, pro-Israel groups and pro-Saudi lobbyists into direct competition. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, Carter basically says we're going to send AWACS to Saudi Arabia in his last year, but it really has to get passed under Reagan. But Reagan is all for it, but he doesn't want to hit kind of pick up the flack from uh, the pro-Israel lobby and the Israeli government. Um, Begin is just staunchly against the sale to Saudi Arabia uh, and fights it tooth and nail. And mm -hmm. Reagan spends ends up spending a lot of political capital that he did not want to spend but he he and his staff viewed this as so important. They had to keep Saudi Arabia happy within the United, you know, within U.S. empire. Uh, and so they very narrowly, but they they got it through uh, Congress. And, yeah, it was one of the more, you know, again, I guess something to also emphasize is that the opposition in Congress was bipartisan. Uh, you had many Democrats and Republicans who saw problems mm -hmm. with selling weapons, especially to Saudi Arabia, but even to Iran under the Shah. Um, and this was a real headache uh, for every president during these years. Let's talk a little bit about that uh, that concept of cooperative empire, um, because that, that really is one of the interesting innovations of the book, I thought. And it's not just Saudi Arabia and Iran, but, but it's a much it's a bigger story than that. Egypt plays a big role in your narrative there. So what's the role of Petrodollar? Yeah, and yeah, yeah so I, I call it the triangle to the Nile that uh, especially Saudi Arabia, but also Iran under the Shah. One of the key projects that the United States wants for petrodollars is to have them provide aid, 
but also private investment into uh, oil poor countries in, in the less developed or you know third world as it was called then and target number one was egypt uh for the united states they saw this both as a key country to try to flip within the context of the cold war they wanted egypt to continue its shift away from the soviet union uh towards the united states and they saw aid and investments from oil rich countries as a way to facilitate this particularly because in the mid-1970s U.S. Congress was not interested in giving large amounts of aid, especially for weapons, to Egypt. There was still a lot of mistrust amongst Congress and the American people. Egypt had fought, you know, several wars with Israel. So there was a lot of wary, and it had been a Soviet ally. So there was a lot of wariness. The U.S. government itself couldn't or wouldn't bring itself to give the money that was needed for Egypt to kind of flip away from the Soviets because the Soviets are starting to withhold aid as they see Sadat shifting over to the U.S. and he's trying to, you know, use that as leverage. So to kind of fill that gap, um, Nixon, Ford, Carter, they look to the Saudis, to the Shah to provide billions of dollars to um, basically hold Egypt over until it reaches a peace agreement with Israel. And the, you know, there was also especially hope for private investment. There was less of this than formal aid than the United States was hoping for. But the combination of these two really kind of held out hope within the Egyptian government and gave Sadat kind of the wiggle room he needed to get from point A to point B from the 73 war to the uh, 79 peace with Israel. So you get into the 1980s, and then that extends to things like uh, the support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, the Iran-Contra affair, and then in the middle of all of this, the oil bust. Yeah, the 80s, in some ways, you see some of the most extreme examples of Washington trying to go around Congress and, and use foreign petrodollars for its uh intended purposes and, and that's saudi arabia for the most part because iran primarily is looking to saudi arabia yeah and in the case of the mujahideen there is support from congress and there's basically a matching agreement between the united states and saudi arabia every dollar of u.s aid saudi arabia will match it to go to the mujahideen now in the case of like the iran iraq war uh the united states increasingly relying on Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, others to provide billions and billions of dollars of aid to keep Iraq afloat against revolutionary Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, that's something that the United States was definitely not going to do directly. Congress was not going to approve billions of dollars to go to Ba'athist, uh, you know, regime of Saddam Hussein. Uh, so that's something that the Reagan administration basically relied on the Saudis and others to fund. Um, similarly, and more in the realm of illegal, <laughs> was uh, the Contras. And I note in the book that uh, it's often referred to as the Iran-Contra scandal, but in many ways it should be the Saudi-Contra scandal. The most kind of dramatic revelation was the fact that funds were diverted from you know the handing of hostages right. to you know funds to iran for the release of hostages in lebanon 
uh, and then some of those funds get diverted to the Contras in uh, Nicaragua. But that was actually a relatively small amount of the money that was illegally going to the Contras that the Reagan administration funneled. The vast majority, about 90% of it, actually came from the Saudi government who secretly gave billions of dollars and that was funneled through the Reagan administration mm -hmm. and third parties to the Contras. So it's actually the, the Saudi government that is the primary source of illegal funds as far as U.S. law is concerned going uh, to the Contras in Nicaragua. So zooming back out a little bit, I mean, one of the key contentions of the book is that oil and the recycling of petrodollars really does lie at the heart of America's relationship with the Middle East and this U.S. empire, as you, as you describe it. And the people who don't look at this are really missing the point. Yeah, I mean, I think that petrodollars or financial flows have not been completely ignored in existing literature, but the centrality of it to maintaining key U.S. relations throughout the region and not just with Saudi Arabia or other oil-rich states, but again, you know, oil-poor countries like Egypt, uh, that this is really central to understanding why the United States has been able to maintain a powerful presence in the Middle East and why the Middle East has been important to projecting U.S. power in many different places, not just the Middle East. You know, uh, again, you know, looking at a place like Nicaragua and the key role that petrodollars play or the fact that, you know, petrodollars are a key source for U.S. finance, you know, private banks in sort of restructuring the global economy in the 1970s that it becomes a key source of lending for the U.S. government, particularly in the early 1980s, uh, that the centrality of petrodollars in both maintaining U.S. relationships and power in the Middle East, and also how the United States uses the Middle East to project power all over the world, um, hasn't been fully sort of reckoned with or recognized. And so that was one of the overarching aims of, of the book is to put that front and center. But going back to Kissinger, you know, there's this real sense at the same time that this also creates vulnerabilities um, that uh, are quite unusual for the United States. So it's creating this cooperative empire, but it also is at some level hostage to the threat of withdrawals from uh, the American banking system or the selling off of treasuries. I mean, it, it's an interesting kind of dual edged kind of empire. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I kind of contrast, you know, pre-1970s U.S. relations, mm -hmm. early Cold War, that, you know, there was also a form of cooperative empire, but it was one where the United States had a lot more sort of one-way power uh, and that essentially either, you know, the U.S. government or U.S. oil companies were largely able to dictate the terms of the relationship. After the oil shock, after you have all this wealth going to both U.S. allies and U.S. opponents in the Middle East uh, of the oil-rich countries, as you say, the United States has to take far more into concern the interests of the Saudi government or of uh, the Shah. And there's a lot of concern about potential that 
it's not just the oil that can be used as a weapon against the United States or the West, but that these investments could be used as a weapon or that this wealth gives these countries kind of more room to maneuver and say, well, if I don't like what the United States is doing, I can go to France or I could even go to the Soviet Union. Everybody wants our money. The United States is not the only game in town. And so, yeah, this gives a lot more leverage and the United States has to pay a lot more sort of care and concern to the interests of its allies in the region. And of course, for outright opponents to the United States, it also gives them more uh, power. So, you know, thinking about Libya under Gaddafi uh, to varying degrees, Iraq under the Ba'athists, um, and then uh, perhaps most importantly, Iran after the revolution, they're using petrodollars in ways to undermine U.S. interests in a way that those countries could not have done before the oil shock. Now, I guess at this point, why don't we switch over and talk about that third leg of the book that you, that you mentioned, which is a kind of an interesting kind of addition to the diplomatic history, which is this focus on uh, culture as revealed in newspapers and and movies and films and uh, TV and all these things. It was a nice way of kind of uh, adding some richness to the uh, to the presentation. Yeah, no, that in some ways might be the most fun part of the book is yeah. uh, the and maybe I think also perhaps maybe one of if not the most novel uh, approaches in the book is that certainly there was recognition that these things were being discussed in the in the media but rather than just kind of taking it at face value or adding a little bit of color i really want to analyze culture and show its connections to political debates mm -hmm. and power uh so even if it's a work of fiction or even if it's a cartoon these are doing real political work and uh you know this can range you know, the, the, also the range of places that you find petrodollars popping up really speaks to how this was on the minds of lots of different people. Uh, it was not just, you know, policymakers or politicians. So, you know, just for example, on the American side, you know, you see petrodollars showing up in you know academy award-winning films like network mm -hmm. uh but it also pops up in um kind of like x-rated um very you know lowbrow <laughs> yeah. films like ilsa uh harem keeper of the oil shakes um and it you know you can see it in political cartoons you know uh like herblock uh, but you also see it popping up in like Sonny and Cher skits on television, right? So if you are a consumer of media, period, like you're probably coming across petrodollars. You didn't have to be someone who was like particularly concerned about politics or finance. It, it, it was being discussed everywhere. And that's true also in the Middle East uh, that, you know, concerns about the way that petrodollars were changing American society, you see this being discussed by secular leftists, you see it being discussed by Islamists, you see it being yeah. discussed by people in government, people who are outside of government, you know, the whole kind of range of society 
there is a recognition and concern about how petrodollars is transforming their societies and their place in the world. And your discussion there, the Arab left and their kind of alternative presentation of how these petrodollars could and should be used and then how that fails is, is quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, I look, you know, at uh, a, a range of different sources from the Middle East. I look at speeches, you know, of key political leaders like Saddam Hussein uh, and Ayatollah Khomeini. But uh, also, you know, some of my favorite ones come out of Ba'athist Iraq and just like the popular media, like the cartoons. Um, one sort of fascinating thing that I found is a recurring theme in Iraqi newspapers and their cartoons was to always make sure that weapons that were held by Iranian soldiers, first under the Shah in the 1970s when they were having border disputes, but then also during the Iran-Iraq war, uh, against the Islamic Republic, they always made sure to write in in English letters USA on the guns or on the <laughs> weapons to demonstrate that the Iranians were using U.S. weapons. And that was a way to tie the Iranians, uh, maybe counterintuitively in the case of the Islamic Republic, but the Ba'athist regime, they argued that for all their rhetoric that the Islamic regime was actually you know, puppets are doing the bidding of the United States. And you could prove that by the fact that they were using U.S. weapons. And of course, after the uh, Iran-Contra revolutions, you know, it was a small, relatively small number of weapons, but that the United States was giving some, this just kind of reaffirmed uh, and maybe, maybe even surprised, but, you know, the, you know, Saddam Hussein was just like, well, you know, this is what I've been saying all along, that the United States actually wants Iran to continue to fight uh, Iraq because we're the real threat to the United States. And they're going to support Iran, even though they have all this, you know, anti-American rhetoric. Um, and so, yeah, this kind of recurring theme of the fact that the United States is giving weapons to Iran, uh, that this has a continuity in the consciousness of Iraqis you know, through the 70s, through the 80s, and that this is all a prelude to then decades of war directly with the United States, this suspicion of U.S. weapons and U.S. power goes really far back. Well, it's interesting, you know, as the book wraps up, you know, we're talking then about the, um, the, the second oil boom and kind of how this plays out in the current period. And I look forward to see uh, how you treat that in volume two uh, when this when it comes out someday. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, David White of UNC Greensboro about his new book, Oil Money. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. On this week's book segment, we talked to Simon Maybon of the University of Lancaster and the director of the CPAD project and author of the brand new book, The Struggle for Supremacy in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, Simon, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me back, Mark. Much appreciated. So tell us about uh, tell us about this book and uh, why you wrote it and what's the major contribution? Well, why I wrote it is kind of a long story. Um, my PhD was on the Saudi-Iranian rivalry, and it later became my first book, which was published by I.B. Taurus back in 2013, titled Saudi Arabia and Iran. I think the first version was soft power rivalry in the Middle East, which then later evolved to power and rivalry for the, for the paperback. 
And that was a book that sought to understand the roots of the rivalry. How do we understand what's going on? Um, basically arguing that we need to understand the domestic politics, the tensions, religion, ethnicity, tribalism, all these different factors that that shape the relationship with the other on the basis of tensions with the self. And that was done with, with Taurus and with Maria Marsh. And this new book sort of came out of a conversation I had with Maria at a Brismas conference about six years ago, when it was suggested that maybe I, I revisit it. And at first I was really, really skeptical because I was done. I was done with this. Didn't want to go back to the topic. You know what it's like, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then I started thinking, well, hang on. There's a really big gap here because while there's a, a, a growing body of work that looks at the rivalry, trying to understand what's happening within it. So I'm thinking of the work of Banashi Kenush, Larry Rubin, Robert Mason, um, and, and others. Few people had actually looked at how the relationship and the rivalry manifests across the region. Instead, they tried to reduce it to, um, quote-unquote, proxy wars or... Um, or things like that. And I thought, well, maybe this is the thing to do. Maybe it's a chance to, to go back to this rivalry, but look at how it actually plays out in the context of states across the region. And so that's kind of the, the big contribution is to look at the spatial repercussions of this rivalry between the Saudis and the Iranians. And to say, well, look, this rivalry isn't static across time and space. It evolves and plays out conditioned by the complexities and contingencies of local context. And that differs from Bahrain to Yemen, from Iraq to Lebanon. And it's all about tracing that complex interplay. Now, the way you approach this is uh, you know, quite distinctive in terms of international relations theory. Uh, you bring in the work of Pierre Bourdieu and a number of other social theorists. Walk us through this a little bit in terms of what you think this kind of engagement with social theory adds to our understanding of this international rivalry. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure the book is is technically a work of IR scholarship, to be honest. I mean, the first chapter, I spend a bit of time trying to grapple with some of the issues within IR as to why there's not as much of a spatial focus. And there's a sort of a, a discussion of why geographers get frustrated with, with political scientists and IR scholars because of this, this failure to, to adequately theorize and engage with questions of space and time. And... I can empathize with that. In a previous work, I got pretty frustrated at some of the, the absence of spatial discussions. And I think through um, collaborating with Eddie Wasnage and Sepad and others, I've been somewhat seduced by geography and by the spatial turn, if you will. And I became more and more interested in how things play out across space and within space. And I thought that using the, the social theory of Pierre Bourdieu is actually really quite interesting in helping us to, to understand this rivalry across different spaces, because that way it allows us to understand difference. It allows us to understand how this, this rivalry that is itself amorphous, malleable entity resonates in different ways. It captures different local dynamics, meaning that you get these complex phenomena that are conditioned by the peculiarities of that particular time and space. And I didn't think that IR could quite do what I wanted to do with that. I spent a lot of time grappling with um, second image reversed and things like that. And I just 
didn't think that it did quite enough of what I wanted to do, which was partly to respond to the the proxy wars thesis. Um, and rejecting that is one of the big things that I try and do in the book. Um, but also trying to give more credit to local dynamics. So trying to engage with that sort of levels of analysis problem in a slightly different way. And I thought that Bourdieu's social theory actually helped me do that quite nicely. Now, when you're talking about Bourdieu, this is someone who has been quite influential in uh, recent Middle East scholarship, um, but generally has not um, been used in kind of the in the IR. And the way you're describing this uh, makes yeah. a lot of sense. Um, for the for the for the sake of our of our listeners who maybe don't uh, do as much work with social theory, uh, maybe you could walk through some of those key concepts that you know field and capital and how they apply in this transnational context. Yeah, um, it's a bit of a, a challenge to do this in in a couple of minutes. So please bear with me. That's um, right. You only have three minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the clock is ticking. Um, so Bourdieu is someone whose whose work is, I think, really valuable in helping to understand politics because he focuses on a relational struggle. He focuses on the interplay of of structure and agency, and he says that fundamentally this is about a, a struggle between different actors who occupy different spaces within what he terms fields. Um, when Bourdieu was writing, he was writing broadly as a sort of cultural theorist, so he didn't necessarily apply these these concepts to the types of things that we would normally be discussing or that, that your guests would normally be discussing. But what he does is he talks about the existence of, of fields as these arenas of contestation between actors that are vying to exert power and to dominate a particular space. Um, and he says that the way that actors are able to do that is through recourse to capital. Um, he's not talking purely sort of the, the Marxist view of capital, but rather different types of reserves that lay claim that allow an actor to lay claim to legitimacy or influence over another. And so he talks about religious capital, economic capital, political capital, coercive capital. And the idea is that uh, for Bourdieu, an actor is seeking to dominate a field to impose their principle of vision and to shape what he terms the habitus. And the habitus is essentially what is deemed thinkable or what is not deemed thinkable. So if you were dominating a field, through whatever form of capital that you're using, you are then seeking to um, to impose your principle of vision and to define what is deemed thinkable. And I thought that was really useful in helping to understand the salience, say, of, of sectarian identities. And this is something that Toby Dodge does really well in the Iraqi case, but he talks about the way in which actors have used different forms of capital to impose this principle of vision and a habitus that is essentially... Um, constructing difference, constructing lines of inclusion and exclusion against the other group. And it's it's sort of defining what can be thought and what can't be thought. And I thought that was really valuable. But the way that it really speaks to IR and IR questions more broadly is I think through the existence of what he terms a transnational field. And a transnational field for me in this book is, is broadly regional politics. The field is comprised of the actors who are operating within it, um, and so you can have a transnational field, or at least in my understanding, that comprises the, the different states, um, states within the region, external powers that are seeking to influence the region, non-state actors, actors that lay claim to different forms of capital that seek to dominate the field. But because of the, 
the salience of some of these ideas, some of this capital, it translates from the transnational field of regional politics into the domestic political field of local politics. And I thought that was a really interesting way of getting around the, the sort of levels of analysis problem, because as Paul Noble talks about, the Middle East is like a grand echo chamber, right? And so they reverberate, ideas reverberate, identities reverberate. And I thought that there's an interesting parallel there between Noble's ideas and then Bourdieu's ideas of fields and and the transnational field. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do there. So let's talk about how this plays out in terms of Saudi Arabia and Iran specifically. What, what does this uh, allow us to see about the nature of that relationship? I think what it allows us to do is to see that this isn't just a static relationship that is sort of monolithic or path dependent. So the, the book tries to argue that this rivalry, while it's self-evolving over time, so um, going from periods of, of kind of overt hostility to periods of burgeoning rapprochement, that it plays out across the region in, in five cases. I look at the cases of Bahrain, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and Lebanon. It plays out in those particular cases differently. And the reason for that is because of the nature of those domestic political fields, because of the actors that are involved in those political fields and the types of capital that they are wielding and what is deemed thinkable in those fields. So that means that the, um, the nature of these interactions helps us to move beyond the, the sort of the static, this is all about sectarian difference, it's all about competing claims to Islamic legitimacy, or it's not about that, it's all about realpolitik. And to say, well, actually, there's a whole host of different weapons in these arsenals in a competition to dominate, in a competition to exert influence that include claims to religious legitimacy, that include cultivating sect-based difference, but that also include um, getting involved with political um, political parties, the provision of economic capital, cultivating pr tribal linkages, lots of different tools, and the nature of those relationships and part personal, part institutional, are conditioned by the nature of sort of local politics in those particular states. So explain then why uh, you have such a strong objection to the concept of proxy wars then. What is it that you think um, that approach is uh, is missing or is misrepresenting? Is it about the local? I think it's a couple of reasons. I don't think it actually captures what's going on. I don't think we are witnessing proxy wars in these spaces that I look at. And I don't think it accurately sort of gives enough credence to local agency. I mean, let's talk about the Yemen case, for example. It's often reduced to a proxy war between the Saudis and the Iranians. But if you look at the, the sort of historical definition of a proxy war, you get these two sides that are external to a conflict, providing financial support, exerting influence over local actors. But the Saudis are directly involved in this. I mean, they're bombing and have been bombing um, northern Yemen, Houthi targets for, for years now. So that kind of refutes the proxy wars thesis. But also, if we look at what's going on in Yemen itself, there's all these other factors, there's all these other struggles, there's all these other forms of division stemming from, in part, the fragmentation of the Yemeni state, the emergence of the Houthis, competing claims to tribal legitimacy, competing claims to dominance, questions about succession and secession, uh, particularly in the South. And 
the the thing that that I keep coming back to is well this this new deal with the Saudis and the Iranians isn't going to solve the war in Yemen. It's not going to be a panacea for for conflict in Yemen or or elsewhere for that matter. And if that's the case, then Yemen isn't a proxy war. It has a a regional component with the Saudis and the Iranians getting involved in different ways, but it's also got these very, very serious local fissures, divisions, and conflicts, plural. So Iran and Saudi Arabia are struggling for supremacy in the Middle East, uh, per the title of the book, but they're not mm-hmm. doing it from your from your vantage point. They're not doing it through the mobilization of local proxies, but rather they're trying to play within a series of already existing fields. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes those pre-existing fields allow them to cultivate local proxies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the past, for example, you'd see the establishment of Hezbollah as a Lebanese pro- as a as an Iranian proxy in Lebanon. Now. Over time, that relationship's evolved far beyond the sort of patron-client type of relationship. Um, so I think what I've tried to do in, in the book is to say that the Saudis and the Iranians are actually very clever here and that they look very closely at the nature of those political fields across the region and they think, okay, well, how can our interests be best served? Is it by trying to create a quote-unquote proxy group? Is it by trying to cultivate relations with um, with a group that has a shared sectarian affinity? Is it through cultivating relations with a shared sort of ideological group? Is it through cultivating tribal links? Or is it through just creating a relationship with a group that shares your own vision? And I think the the Lebanese case is actually really quite useful here. If we look at the post-2018 context, the, the broad failings of Saad Hariri have frustrated Riyadh to no end, and that's prompted them to turn elsewhere, including to Christian groups, right? To to the likes of Samir Jajah. And that's not along shared sectarian lines. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not a proxy group established by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but rather it's a group that shares similar types of interests with the Saudis, namely to counter the gains made by Hezbollah. So I think Doing it that way helps to paint a more nuanced picture of of what's going on in the region. And locally as well, it helps us to better understand how those groups, um, groups within these these five states that I look at, try and position themselves vis-a-vis other local actors, but also how they try and draw support from regional powers as well. So um, the, the local actors are able to then try and derive support from their sort of regional right regional actors so it can be it can be like a grassroots movement to try and secure regional support not just a top down but sort of a, a a symbiotic relationship now one of the things about uh Bordeaux's approach in general to fields and capital is is the idea that some types of of capital are more useful in some contexts than in others Sometimes yep. it'll be financial. Sometimes it'll be symbolic. Sometimes it'll be uh, military. And uh, how do you see that playing out in some of your cases where the uh, some power resources matter more than others in certain times and places? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think that's one of the strengths of this Bourdieuian approach. It doesn't just have a fixed sort of hierarchy of, of types of capital, if you will, but rather it calls for analysis of the nature of a particular field 
and the relational arrangement of actors within those fields. And understanding those types of relational arrangements can help us to understand the types of capital that resonate most. And the Bahraini case, I think, is, is quite an interesting one because the, the Bahraini case points to the importance of economic capital, particularly when understanding the relationship between the Al Saud and the Al Khalifa, but also the tensions that start to emerge between the two when the Al Khalifa is seen to be exerting greater um, autonomy, greater independence, despite the Al Saud providing this economic capital. So what's really quite interesting, I think, in this approach, the Bourdieu's approach to looking at Bahrain, is that the, the Al Saud, the Saudis more broadly, but very much the Al Saud because of the personal relationships between the, uh, the two ruling families, the two royal families, have a vested interest and are players themselves within Bahrain's political field. So they're not necessarily coming at it as an external actor in this field, but rather they are invested in it themselves. And they're invested economically, but they're invested also through sort of social capital because of the, the interfamilial marriages that, that were there between the, the two families. So you even looking at a case like Bahrain or actually kind of across the region as a whole, you're not arguing that sectarianism doesn't matter. You're arguing that it's situational. Yeah, very much so. A sectarian ma sectarianism matters. Of course it matters. There is this thing called sect-based difference, but that is a product of the contingencies, complexities of time and space. And there's been a, a whole host of, of really fascinating work being done on that that calls for a more grounded, more situational approach to understanding relations between different sect-based communities. And I think that's really important, but it comes to the fore here. And I think it comes out really nicely when looking at how the Saudis and the Iranians try and cultivate these relationships with different actors, different groups across the region, because we can see how sect-based difference is mobilized at particular times and then deactivated at other times because of the, the broader salience of sect-based difference within political fields, the salience of, say, um, uh, the broader axis of resistance narrative, the, the importance of capital. So it's, it's very much a situational thing that can be activated, mobilized, and then deactivated. So if the forms and modalities of the, of the competition are quite fluid and, and localized and situational, but it seems the competition itself seems to be built into the theory. Is that right? Competition built into Bourdieu's theory. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of at the heart of what Bourdieu is getting at. He's saying that actors are involved within fields, but they are positioned vis-a-vis -vis one another. And the struggle, competition, contestation, is over defining the nature of that field and defining what is thinkable and what is unthinkable. And I think there's a really interesting example from some... A, a discussion, a literature completely unrelated to us, talking about art. And he talks about art critics and art critics' efforts to dominate the field of art and what is deemed thinkable and what is deemed unthinkable in terms of beauty, in terms of what is acceptable as good art and bad art. And that's through a contestation between relational actors who are seeking to define what is thinkable and what is not. So, yeah, it's very much a relational struggle between actors that are within a field 
And the nature of that relation, the nature of that contestation shapes both the boundaries of the field and the nature of the field itself. So right now we're we're in March of uh, 2023, and uh, there have been this brand new breakthrough brokered by China, uh, the attempt to restore diplomatic relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia and de-escalate tensions. Um, how How does something like that how would you see that playing out, looking at it through the lens of, of your theoretical approach? I think it's it's a really interesting point. Um, I think I was just thinking about this before we started recording, that the last time we did one of these recordings was in Chatham House. And it came, what, six weeks after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani and about a month before the COVID outbreak. So... In that period of time since then, things have changed dramatically. And yet they also haven't changed that much in terms of this rivalry between the Saudis and the Iranians. And at that time and moving forwards, there were sort of diplomatic initiatives, track two, track 1.5 diplomatic initiatives that were taking place around the world, trying to de-escalate tensions, trying to reduce tensions between the two states. But at the same time, there were all these other Um, arenas of conflict in which the Saudi-Iranian rivalry was manifesting, that it was emerging, that it was playing out, that that were continuing to escalate, that were continuing to deteriorate, that were continuing to provoke existential concerns. In the case of Yemen for the Saudis, they were deeply worried about spillover or spill in from the Yemen war. And so I think... What the what the deal, the agreement has shown is that you can have things playing out different levels of analysis that are independent of one another, but of course may well feed into one another. So the, the fears about the Yemen war escalating and drawing the Saudis in further or spilling into Saudi Arabia has been one of the key driving factors shaping the, um, the negotiating position of those involved in the talks, right? But just because there is this agreement, it doesn't mean that the war in Yemen will be resolved tomorrow. It may well change the dynamics of the conflict by um, reports are suggesting that Iran has agreed to stop providing the Houthis with weapons. That may in turn help uh, facilitate dialogue between the Houthis and the Saudis, which has been ongoing as well. But that will not address the root causes of the war itself and all these other lines of division. Similarly, a, a deal between the Saudis and the Iranians is not going to bring about an end to the to the Lebanese economic crisis or the crisis over the, the, the Lebanese state, or indeed divisions in Iraq, or the relationship between Bashar al-Assad and the Syrian people that have been bombed for the past 12, 13 years. So it's one part of a much bigger story, I think, but all these other stories kind of feed into one another because of that relational modality that you've been um alluding to in the previous question so i think it's i think it's supporting the arguments that i'm making but also it it points to the need for a lot more hard work creative diplomacy if we're actually going to see a a more peaceful region that that we all so so care about so very much that isn't just about resolving the the concerns of high politics it's about addressing the concerns of people and their basic needs and listening to what is actually going on on the ground in these 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 spaces beset by by conflict and division and there's not going to be any top-down linear 
um, you know, course of events following from a diplomatic deal up, the, up at the top, because as your book shows, the local context is so central to defining how things go there. So it's uh, much less of a linear, direct kind of analysis. Exactly. I mean, I think that the top, the regional sort of dynamics matter here because it can help to build a bit of confidence. It can help people to, to feel better about the sort of specter of a region-wide conflict, an all-encompassing worry that, that many have had. And speaking to the Saudis, they're overjoyed because they were scared about the, the possibility of conflict with Iran. But that will not, as you say, address the sort of grassroots, local, basic needs that are not being met, or indeed the concerns, complexities, worries of people who were fighting to survive in many cases. Now, one of the things which is interesting about this uh, about this approach is trying to think through, are there conditions under which there would not be an Iranian-Saudi struggle for supremacy in the Middle East? In other words, is the competition baked in regardless of regime type, regardless of leadership, or is it something about the specific types of ideological competition? Um, is, is it a base realism or a base constructivism or, or something uh. else? Well, in my first book, I used a realist constructivism because of the sort of the fusion of the mm -hmm. two. Um, I've, I've long argued that relations between the Saudis and the Iranians are not static. They're not inherently fractious, um, nor are they inherently um, ahistorically positive. They're a product of time and space. They're a product of domestic political arrangements. They're a product of regime type. But they're also a product of, of geography. They're a product of the, the interplay of identities within each state. And I think if I can give a shout out to Banashi Kenusha's wonderful book, Saudi Arabia and Iran, Friends or Foes, she does a great job of, of tracing this back to sort of 100 years ago. And you've got this really interesting tale of the Saudis and the Persians at that point who are broadly getting along but there are moments of hostility the two are on neighbors right they have territorial disputes and although the shah was was a deeply secular person he was not bothered about um about religious matters particularly he was placed under a lot of pressure from shia clerics about the treatment of shia groups in the the saudi state so even though religion didn't necessarily matter for the for the Shah. It did matter because of the pressure that he was being put under. And so while you had these broadly amicable relations between the two states, you had territorial disputes. And even though religion wasn't built into the fabric of the then Persian state, it did matter because of, of how um, actors within Persia were starting to respond to what was going on in the in the nascent kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So I think religion matters, of course. Territory matters. Regional rivalries matter. But then as things develop, as things evolve, you start to get other factors being pulled into the equation. And I think you get this really sort of complex set of interactions that then erupt in 1979 that de-escalate after the death of Rukhola Khomeini and with the sort of emergence of a, of a new generation of leaders in Iran and an opening up perhaps 
of leadership in Saudi. You start to see moments of possibility. But then post-2001, post-9-11, with the invasion of Iraq, you see things changing again. So that points to the complexity and the, the involvement of external actors and pressure from above of, of global politics, the war on terror. So you kind of get this this multi-level analysis kind of shaping regional politics. So there's pressure from above, there's pressure from, from hegemonic aspirations of, of the US and, and others, but then there's also pressure from below as we've seen over history. Well, it's really interesting. Uh, we've been speaking to Simon Maybon about his brand new book, The Struggle for Supremacy in the Middle East. Uh, thanks for joining us. <laughs>